in the first two lectures, we examined various challenges alleged and real that evolutionary biology offers to the traditional doctrine of creation. If natural selection, working with chance genetic mutations, can produce the order, design, and great variety we discover in the world of living things, and in the process, explain the emergence of new species, there would seem to be no need to appeal to a supernatural grand designer. We have seen at least two errors in the claim that contemporary science has rendered superfluous the existence of a creator. The first is the mistake in identifying the act of creation as essentially the causing of order and design rather than the more fundamental bestowing of existence. God's creative act as is disclosed in metaphysical and theological analyses, not in the conclusions of the natural sciences. Creation is not a change. Thus, since the natural sciences have as their proper realm of inquiry changes in and among natural entities, they tell us nothing about whether all that exists is created. To be created is to depend completely upon God's agency. The dependency concerns everything that is in whatever way or way, everything that is in whatever way or ways it is. Second, there is a wider framework in which discussions about creation and science occur, which often involves a kind of totalizing naturalism, according to which the natural sciences tell us all that we need to know about reality. Questions such as why there is something rather than nothing are to be dismissed as meaningless. In discussing the topic of creation in a self-sufficient universe, in last week's lecture, I argued that the account of creation Thomas sets forth is not only consistent with real causes in nature, causes which the natural sciences discover, but that the very autonomy of nature itself is only made possible by God's creative act. I argued that God causes creatures to be causes, and that furthermore, God and creatures are not partial causes. A natural event is completely caused by God and completely caused by creatures. This evening, I want to expand our analysis of how Thomas can speak of God as complete cause and creatures as causes, and how, for example, one can speak of contingent and chance events in nature, which are caused by God, to be contingent and chance events. The problem seems obvious. If God is the absolutely necessary being, omniscient and omnipotent, he knows and causes all that is down to every individual particular feature of reality. If this is true, then it seems that there can be no contingent events, events which might or might not be in a world created by a God so understood. Thus, to admit contingency and chance, it seems that one must either reject the existence of God, or a God who is omnipotent, or radically revise the classical traditional understanding of God. 
Thomas Aquinas was well aware of such objections. In book three of the Summa Contra Gentiles, he notes the problem, uh, text number one. If all things that are done here below, even contingent events, are subject to divine providence, then seemingly either providence cannot be certain or else all things happen by necessity. The source of most of the difficulties in grasping an adequate understanding of the relationship between the created order and God is the failure to understand divine transcendence. It is God's very transcendence, a transcendence beyond any contrast with imminence that enables God to be intimately present in the world as cause. God is not transcendent in such a way that he is outside or above or beyond the world. God is not different from creatures in the way in which creatures differ from one another. We might say that God differs differently from the created order. Text two on the screen. God operates imminently in nature in such a way that he sets nature free, so to speak, in its own operations. Thomas sees God as a cause, which by its transcending imminence constitutes the causality of nature in its own order. And the text here from Thomas, God is in all things, not indeed as part of their essence, nor as an accident, but as an agent is present to that upon which it works. Therefore, as long as a thing has being, God must be present to it according to its mode of being. But being is innermost in each thing and most fundamentally inherent in all things, since it is formal in respect to everything found in a thing. Hence, it must be that God is in all things and innermostly. To be in all things innermostly, God must be a transcendent cause, a cause radically other than the kinds of causes which we find in the world of creatures. In order for God not to be a competing cause, which is a prerequisite for his being the complete cause of all that is and for creatures being the complete cause of what they affect, in order for God not to be a competing cause, he must be a transcendent cause. The word transcendent, as it refers to God, is based on what it means for God to be the creator and not a creature. God's causality does not dis diminish or distort the causality of creatures, since God causa God's causality is the very source of the whole reality of all creatures, including all their causal powers. Text number three, there is no necessity that any created being actually exists. That is, there is no necessity it somehow requires that God create any particular thing, or for that matter, that God created all. 
Thus, there is a kind of contingency in being created, since it is not necessary that creation occur. And further, God's creative act is needed for the continued, continual cause, causing of whatever exists. But the contingency of created things as created is not the same as the contingency that exists in effects in the world based on causes in the world, effects that may or may not happen. Once again, this analysis, uh, this analysis depends on a proper understanding of creation as the complete causing of the existence, of the complete causing of the ex of existence, and that God's causal agency is a transcendent causal agency, a causal agency not in competition with the causal activity of creatures. Too often, modern theism embraces a domesticated transcendence based on the view that, uh, excuse me, based on the view, there's a mistake here, that uh, transcendence and imminence are contrasting categories such that one necessarily excludes uh, the other. This shift from a Thomistic understanding of divine transcendence has resulted in rejecting traditional attributes of God, for example, omnipotence, immutability, and timelessness, in order to affirm the integrity of processes in nature. Even the relatively tame variety of domestic transcendence, the, the sense that there is something beyond the horizon of our material universe, this the domesticated sense. Even this sense has been challenged, especially by those who accept the kind of totalizing naturalism about which I spoke last week. Charles Taylor is a good guide for our current intellectual landscape in which almost all notions of transcendence have disappeared. He notes, that a crucial characteristic of our secular age is the possibility of describing the cosmos in wholly imminent terms, especially when imminence is contrasted with transcendence. Wholly imminent terms without any reference to a transcendent source of existence and meaning. For Charles Taylor, the number four on the, on the screen, the imminent frame is the sense of an absence. It is the sense that all order meaning comes from us. We encounter no echo outside. A race of humans has arisen, which has, a which has managed to experience its world entirely as imminent. In some respects, we may judge this achievement a victory of darkness, but it is a remarkable achievement nonetheless no transcendent horizon to, our, to judge our sense of meaning and purpose. Creatures of pure imminence still may be haunted, according to Taylor, by a longing for the transcendence rejected. But part of the problem, I think, is the notion that one must choose between transcendent and imminent sources of meaning. 
Now, when we speak of God's being transcendent, we use a term, transcendence, that initially suggests something distinct from or contrasted with imminence. Just as when we speak of infinite, we think of that which is distinct from, if not opposed to, finite. But when we use terms like infinite and transcendent to refer to God, we need to recognize that the terms have a special sense. For Thomas, God transcends the ordinary categories of transcendence and imminence. Just as when we say that God is infinite, we mean or ought to mean that God is beyond the categories of finite and infinite. These terms have their beginnings in our analysis of the world. An analysis that first of all refers to beings which are created, beings in which there is a distinction between essence and existence, a distinction between what a thing is and the fact that it exists. God, however, is that reality in which his essence and existence are identical. Precisely because God is ipsum esse subsistence, as Thomas says in Latin, whatever we say of God cannot mean the same thing as what we say of creatures. Hence, terms like infinite and transcendent, and many others, are used in a very special sense when said of God. These special senses can only be grasped, if grasped at all, by reflecting on what they must mean in a reality in whom essence and existence are identical. God's otherness or beyondness is grasped by a kind of negative dialectic aided by an elaborate sense of analogical predication. God is not like this or not like that. The loss of the traditional sense of transcendence, at least as applied to God, that loss has given way to the loss of any sense of transcendence, the emergence, that is, of what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. It is a framework in which materialism and then various forms of methodological naturalism thrive. It is this wider framework, this imminent frame, in which Darwinian evolutionary theory appears and develops. So far this evening, I've been emphasizing the importance of thinking clearly uh, about God's transcendence. We need as well, however, to confront another thorny issue, the notion of cause. Perhaps lurking throughout my lectures, there has been some confusion about this term. Contemporary discussions of causality, whether divine causality or the causality exercised by creatures, contemporary discussions tend to suffer from impoverished notions of cause, at least in comparison with analyses in the Middle Ages. When Thomas speaks of causality, whether it be that exercised by God or by creatures, 
he employs a different and much richer sense of the term than we tend to use today. He recognizes, for example, that cause is an analogical term and thus, and thus takes on various and diverse senses depending on the context in which it is employed. Number five on the screen. Medieval discussions of causality often distinguish between universal and particular causes, actual and potential causes, and essential and accidental causes, as well as more generally, Aristotle's material, efficient, formal, and final causes. For Thomas, as for Aristotle, a cause is that upon which something depends for its being or becoming, but the modes of dependency vary greatly, and hence the modes of cause vary greatly. Whereas contemporary thinkers have come to view causality in, time, in terms of a necessary consequentiality between events, first the cause, then the effect in a kind of temporal sequence. Thomas, on the other hand, understood causality in terms of metaphysical dependence. As part of the philosophy of nature, connected to the rise of modern science in the 17th century, two of the four causes of Aristotelian science, the final and the formal, were considered irrelevant. Furthermore, to the extent that the natural sciences came to be seen as depending exclusively on the language of mathematics, only that which was measurable would fall within their explanatory domains. Even the notion of agent or efficient causality underwent a profound change from the Aristotelian sense. It came to be conceived exclusively in terms of the force or energy that moved the fundamental parts of the universe. In the 18th century, David Hume called into question even this narrow idea of efficient causality. Since the supposed influence of a cause upon its effect was not directly evident to sense observation, Hume concluded that the connection between cause and effect was not a feature of the real world, but only a habit of our thinking as we become accustomed to see one thing constantly conjoined to another. Text six on the screen. One important result of Hume's analysis is to come to think of causality not as a property of things, but of thought. Causality is no longer an ontological reality in the world outside ourselves, but an epistemological property of the way we think about the world. Thus, the hallmark of causality is to be found in the epistemological category of predictability rather than the ontological category of dependence. For many today, only explanations in terms of material constituent parts and of changes in and among these parts are considered to be scientific. Yet, however successful contemporary science has been, in enhancing our understanding of the world, there remains the lingering suspicion 
that its reductionist paradigms can provide only a partial view of the whole of natural entities, and hence only a partial view of causality. We need, I think, to recover a deeper and more expansive notion of cause. At the very least, we need to recognize the fundamental difference between the way the term cause is used today compared to Thomas's understanding. As a result of the failure to grasp the analogical sense of cause, in particular of agent or efficient cause, and to think of agency in terms of a physical force, one result is that divine causality too comes to be seen in such terms as physical force. And to conceive of God's causality in terms of a force or a burst of energy is to make God a kind of competing cause in the world, or perhaps better put, just one more cause in the world, although considerably more powerful than any other. Thus, for example, to view the world as functioning in terms of an ordered regularity of mechanical causes seems to mean that there is no room for any kind of special divine action. God's action, if God acts, would mean a breaking of the causal nexus in nature, a nature understood as the ordered regularity of mechanical causes. Michael Dodds, and I'll have a quotation from him a little, bit, in a little later, Michael Dodds, a Dominican philosopher at Berkeley, argues that contemporary science has provided insights into reality that encourage a return to the richer tradition of causality represented by Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Theories of emergence and top-down causality in biology and chemistry, chaos theory, and even the indeterminism referred to in quantum mechanics are contributing to a renewed interest in what we mean by causes in nature, including formal and final causality. It may well be, Dodds thinks, that the discoveries of contemporary science may help us to break free from the physical limitations of a mechanistic and materialistic natural philosophy, and the notion of a, as well as the notion of cause associated with this philosophy. My principal point here, even with this historical and philosophical digression about cause, is that without an analogical notion of cause, we cannot begin to understand Thomas's explanation of the relationship between creation and science. Otherwise, it will be difficult, if not impossible, for us to understand how natural effects such as evolutionary processes are attributed both to natural agents and to God. Number seven on the screen, the analogous nature of cause does not only apply to the distinction between transcendent causality and creaturely causality. Indeed, it's dangerous to speak of a distinction in this context since distinction suggests some common ground of comparison between creator and creature. There are also different senses of cause predicated to creatures. Material, efficient, formal, and final causes 
not to mention instrumental causes, essential causes and accidental causes are all causes, but not in exactly the same way. As always, we need to guard against the intellectually debilitating error of univocal predication. Thomas tells us that, quote, God is the cause of all actions inasmuch as every agent is the instrument of the divine power acting. Text eight on your handout. In addition to God's causing a natural agent to act to produce effects that are within the agent's proper power, God can also apply the power of the natural being to act and thus use the natural agent in its actions to produce an effect which goes beyond the natural agent's power. Thomas uses the analogy of instrumental causality here. When a butcher uses a knife to cut a piece of meat in a certain way, the power to cut resides in the knife in that the knife exists in such a way as to be an instrument of cutting. But the special kind of cutting that a butcher uses to produce the best piece of meat goes well beyond an intrinsic feature of the knife. The first effect of the knife, the actual cutting, is proper to the knife. It follows from what a knife is. The second effect, the cutting of the meat in a particular way for a particular purpose, flows from the butcher himself. It is through the first effect, the cutting, which is proper to a knife, that the second effect, the cutting in a particular manner occurs. Of course, neither effect would occur without the action of the principal agent, in this case, the butcher. Similarly, remember this is an analogy, similarly we can say that God can act in and through each natural agent to achieve effects which go beyond the natures of the secondary causes, causes of the agent. This is a way, this is a way we can speak of God's providential action, an action that does not diminish the action or power of natural agents, but an action by which God achieves the goals he seeks for the universe. Now, by the way, when speaking of natural agencies, natural agency and natural agents, we do not mean only volitional agents like human beings, but all natural entities, all material substances. Given that every action of every natural agent, animate and inanimate, can be, can be attributed to God and its, as its primary and principal cause, God's action extends to all being, universally and particularly. Thus, Thomas can affirm that that which comes from the operation of secondary causes, creatures, huh, is subject to divine providence. God is continuously active in the universe, and that action is providential. One of the major challenges of evolutionary biology to the idea of an all-powerful and providential God, a God whose will is never frustrated, 
is the existence of chance, especially at the level of genetic mutations. Of course, chance is not only a topic with respect to biology, but to nature as a whole. In some ways, the challenge that comes from chance is similar to claims about fundamental indeterminism at the level of quantum events. And we can add to the list of challenges to providence the question of human freedom. But for now, I want to limit my discussion to chance and providence and to relate this discussion to what I've already said about divine transcendence. Thomas, of course, accepts as incontrovertibly true that God is omnipotent and that his will is never frustrated. In one section of the Summa Theologiae, in which he discusses whether everything is subject to the providence of God, he begins with this objection. This is text number nine on the screen. It seems that everything is not subject to divine providence, for nothing foreseen can happen by chance. If then everything was foreseen by God, nothing would happen by chance, and thus hazard and luck would disappear which is against common opinion. Thomas argues in reply that if we view God as transcendent cause, then God does not deprive chance of its contingent character, nor does chance subvert God's action. Although one secondary cause, creaturely cause, may hinder the effect of another, no secondary cause can impede the influence of God as the universal cause of all things. Uh, by secondary cause, we mean all, other, all causes other than God. And this is uh, number 10 on your screen. The causality of God, who is the first agent, extends to all being, not only as to constituent principles of species, but also as to the individualizing principles, not only of things incorruptible, but also of things corruptible. Hence, all things that exist in whatsoever manner are necessarily directed by God towards some end. It necessarily follows that all things, inasmuch as they participate in existence, must likewise be subject to divine providence. Notice here the bringing together of notions of creation, transcendence, and providence. And number 11, also from the same uh, uh, article in the Summa, since then all particular causes are included under the universal cause, it could not be that any effect should take place outside the range of the universal cause, of that universal cause. Here we need to examine more carefully what Thomas means by chance in order to see how he can speak of God's causing chance events to be chance events. Since it would seem that if God causes anything to be, it must be what God causes it to be. Yet a chance event seems to be an event without a specific cause. A chance event is, a, is an event which occurs outside the intention of the agent. 
When speaking of chance with respect to human agents, Thomas uses the example, this is number 12 on the screen, Thomas uses the example of a grave digger who, in digging a grave, accidentally discovers a buried treasure. The grave digger is directly or per se the cause of the grave, but only incidentally, per accidens, the cause of finding the treasure since the finding of the treasure is only joined incidentally to the digging of the grave. The world is sufficiently complex that there are innumerable ways in which an incidental feature may be associated with the effect of some action. There is no direct or per se cause of the finding of the treasure. It is, for Thomas, a chance event. In a way, we can speak of the causality of chance, but strictly it is not the cause without qualification of anything. As Thomas says, it is not true that every effect has a direct cause. For something that comes about accidentally does not have any cause. A chance event, as Thomas understands, a chance event occurs when there is a concurrence of causes which are not subsumed one under the other. The burial of the treasure by someone is one series of causes. The finding of the treasure by someone digging a grave is another example. A rock's falling from a cliff landing on a growing sapling and crushing it, another example. There is no direct per se cause of any of these events. Uh, the quotation from Michael Dodds, number 13, the absence of any natural cause in chance events, including quantum events, does not imply the absence of God's influence. Chance is a real feature of the natural world. And as primary cause, God acts through all nature, including the causality of chance. If God's causality is not excluded from chance events, neither is it excluded from the cumulative effects of such events, such as the generation of new species through the chance events involved in evolution. God does not determine the indeterminacy of chance. That is, God does not make that indeterminacy determinate. God acts precisely through that indeterminacy. We might say that God's causality acts precisely through the non-causality of chance. And I have uh, uh, given you two books uh, that in which Michael Dodds writes on this subject. The most recent one was published uh, uh, at the end of the summer. Retrospectively, we might be able to see how a particular chance came about. We might be able to identify the different lines of causality which intersected, as it were. That, some that someone buried the treasure at a particular place and that the grave digger chose to dig a grave at that same place. 
Still, we would not know why it happened that the grave digger came upon the treasure. We would not know this because knowing in the full sense includes knowledge of why something occurs, not simply how it occurs. Since the chance event, since the chance event in this case, the discovery of the treasure, has no proper cause, this is what Thomas calls a per se cause, since it has no proper cause, the event is in some sense beyond the grasp of our intelligence. When an oak tree comes about from the germination of an acorn, we can discover the proper per se cause in the nature of the acorn and thus can have botanical knowledge of a natural process. We can see the causal connection of an acorn to oak tree and that causal connection possesses a unity and hence an intelligibility. The various events and causal connections involved in the germination and growth of an oak tree are all part of or subsumed under one ordered series. Right? Again, the discovery, the burial of the treasure and then its discovery by the grave digger are not subsumed under one ordered, one ordered series. Number 14, in order to understand better what Thomas means by events which occur per se and those which occur accidentally, we would need to examine in detail his philosophy of nature, in particular what he means by substance and substantial form and the kind of unity that natural entities and events possess. Here it will have to suffice to say that for Thomas, an accidental being, and in this case he's referring to an event or effect as a being, since that event exists, but that accidental being does not have a cause, least of all a natural cause, because that which occurs accidentally, neither is a being, properly speaking, nor is one. For instance, that an earthquake occurs when a stone falls or that a treasure be discovered when a man digs a grave. For these and like occurrences are not one thing, but are simply several things. Thomas, following Aristotle, thinks that because there are contingent and chance events in the universe, a fair amount of what happens must remain ultimately unintelligible to us. This is because full knowledge is through causes and one cannot have scientific knowledge of accidental happenings, even though God causes them to happen in a contingent manner. There is a remote cause of contingent and chance events, namely God who is the cause of all being. But we cannot know why a chance event occurs, only that it occurs. Thus, a chance event is not a question of our ignorance. It is not the case that if we knew more about what happened, chance would disappear. Chance is a feature of the world. But note 
that the very intelligibility of chance presupposes that there are natures and natural causes. God causes accidental being, in this case, accidental or incidental effects that occur in nature, and he causes these incidental or chance effects to be what they are. Such causing by God does not eliminate chance, since God is not a competing cause in the world, but is rather a transcendent cause. I may say that again. If God does, the causing of chance events and contingent events in the world by God does not eliminate there being chance and contingent events. Why? Because the kind of causing God exercises is not that of a competing cause in the world, but rather God is a transcendent cause. In a number of places, Thomas will say that nothing in the world happens by chance, that in particular, everything is foreseen by God. What Thomas means is that chance, just like the categories of determinism and indeterminism, necessity and contingency, those categories do not apply to divine causality. In the realm of primary of the primary transcendent cause, God, nothing occurs by chance. But if we consider such events in their full context, including both the primary causality of God and the secondary causality of creatures, we can affirm that some worldly events do happen by necessity, contingency, freedom, or chance, just as God intends them to occur. A chance event is a chance event with respect to proximate causes. The absence, that is, of proximate per se causes, but not with respect to the absence of God's causality. Because God is the cause of all that is in whatever ways it is. And chance events exist in a certain way, and God causes them to exist in the way that they exist. Hence, whatever chance events occur at the level of genetic mutations, or whatever indeterminacy there is at the level of quantum events, these events do not challenge the view of an omnipotent, providential God who wills all to be in whatever way or ways things are. Because modern science is limited to investigating quantifiable proximate causes, scientists correctly describe certain events as chance or random events, since they are, in their context, uncaused. However, to add to this that God cannot also be the cause of these events is to assume that God's causality must be like any other quantifiable proximate cause. The error here is obvious. The only God excluded in such a view is a powerful entity within the created order and not the transcendent creator. We need to point out as well the error of those who, in defending God's omnipotence, reject the possibility of chance, contingency, and creaturely freedom. They, 
they also fail to grasp what it means for God to be the transcendent creator. It might seem paradoxical at first, but God is the cause of the uncaused or per accidents events in nature. I began these lectures by noting the challenge, Dar challenges Darwinian evolutionary theory is thought to present for the doctrine of creation. By following Thomas's distinction between creation understood philosophically and creation understood theologically. We've been able to see that from a philosophical point of view in the discipline of metaphysics, there is no need to choose between a robust view of creation as the constant exercise of divine omnipotence and the causes disclosed by the natural sciences. God's creative power is exercised throughout the entire cause of cosmic history in whatever ways that history has unfolded. No matter how random one thinks evolutionary change is, for example, no matter how much one thinks that natural selection is the master mechanism of change in the world of living things, the role of God as creator, as continuing cause of the whole reality of all that is, is not challenged. We need to remember Thomas's fundamental point that creation is not a change, and thus there is no possibility of conflict between the explanatory domain of the natural sciences, the world of change, and that of creation. We need to remember as well that God's transcendence allows him, so to speak, to be the complete cause of all that is, and that created causes have their own proper autonomy, their own integrity. The account Thomas offers of divine agency and the autonomy of nature is not merely an artifact from the past, but an enduring legacy. After Darwin, our understanding of the world has changed significantly. We should no longer overlook the natural processes that are central to an evolving universe nor think that God must intervene directly in nature to produce the order and design in the world, nor think that chance events challenge divine providence. After Darwin, we're able to see perhaps more clearly than before Thomas's point that as a result of God's ongoing creative act, natural processes, nature possesses a dynamism and self-sufficiency that have been ever more evident to science. But after Darwin, we do not have to alter our conception of God as creator. God after Darwin is really the same as God before Darwin, at least the God shown to us by Thomas Aquinas. Now in the final lecture next week, as I said, I will discuss recent developments in cosmology especially concerning the beginning of the universe and point to errors that follow from identifying the creation of, of the universe as necessarily involving a beginning. Hence the title, The Error of Beginnings and the Beginning of Errors, Creation and Contemporary Cosmology. Thank you.